for more than 2,000 years of church history, uh, this, this day has been, as you've heard, traditionally Palm Sunday. And it's the beginning of the final week of Jesus' earthly life leading up to uh, the crucifixion. Um, so the reason we call it Palm Sunday is because on this Sunday, symbolically, is when Jesus entered Jerusalem before he was crucified. And the Bible says that people welcomed him um, by waving um, palm branches. And before we read the text, I actually want to just uh, set the scene for us a little bit. Um, because it might be a little bit longer text for us to understand, but it's the Passover week, and Jesus is on a donkey riding into Jerusalem. Um, the crowds, they've gathered, and the atmosphere is fully charged for the celebration, and everyone's emotions are heightened for different reasons. Now, there's a crowd that's welcoming Jesus as a hero because they've been both hearers but also eyewitnesses to his miracles because they're seeing things that no one in history has ever done. Now, others are welcoming Jesus as a hero because they're looking for um, the Messiah. Uh, so it's also interesting that Jesus is going back to the same city, and it's the city where people wanted to kill him. So, of course, seeing him to come back to this city is pretty much a gutsy move. You know, I mean, all these town people, the Pharisees trying to kill you, comes into the same area. Now, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the crowd of disciples begin to praise him with loud voices for all the miracles they've seen. And what we learn in John 12, 13, says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, I want you to feel this tension for a moment. People are ascribing kingship to a man that the Pharisees hated. And, but these people ascribing worship, they can't help themselves because if you remember in John 11 last week, Jesus did something miraculous. What did he do? Just last week. He raised Lazarus from the dead, right? John 11. And this was done in a town called Bethany. And Bethany was two miles out from outside Jerusalem. So how could you deny this miracle? Um, so the people are now rolling out this red carpet um, for Jesus, waving palm branches in their hands. So people are rejoicing that Jesus the Messiah is now coming back into Jerusalem. But if we think back to... When he, when he fed the 5,000, people got into their boats and they went over to Capernaum where Jesus was. And when he didn't feed them bread, remember they wanted bread? Okay. And so when he didn't give them bread, they all got mad and they left. And so this tells us that people were willing to follow Jesus as long as he did whatever they expected. I'm sure that many of you might have been in situations like that before, that as long as you compromise, people are willing to tolerate you. You ever been there before? No? Tough crowd today. But the crowd is celebrating uh, Jesus as king because they expected him to overthrow the Roman government. 
Um, if you're truly the Messiah, that's what you'll do. So they thought that Jesus was going to bring peace into the kingdom of Israel. And so they're celebrating him. If you remember, we just read in John 12, 13, it says, even the king of Israel. So they're expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow this people again. They were trying to kill him. He left, and now he's coming back. So they're saying, ah, yes, I knew it. He's coming back to town. But Jesus had a different agenda. Um, we, um, we learn that in five days later from now, symbolically, that when he didn't fulfill their desire, they moved from celebrating him as king to shouting what? Crucify him. What kind of high-pitched voice is that? But today is a celebration. Today's, uh, this Sunday, we're worshiping Jesus. But will you worship Jesus in spite of the disappointment that you might face tomorrow? Because that's what we're, we're forced to see. We learn about the agenda of Christ is that he came to die for the sins of the world. But the crowd, they didn't understand and his disciples, they also didn't understand the significance of this moment, Palm Sunday. How do we know this? John 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, talking about his glorified body, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So if you remember after Christ, you know, his resurrection, he had this glorified body. They could still see him. They weren't seeing a ghost. They saw this body, and then he ascended to heaven. So we often miss the things in front of us because our minds are preoccupied with fulfilling our desires. Um, it's not that they, um, they didn't want to serve him, but our text says that they didn't remember because they're so focused on this in the Messiah coming into town. We know the importance of having faith. Right? But sometimes we're preoccupied because of the things we want right now. And when we don't get it, it's not like we don't believe in Jesus. But right now, because we don't see the things that we want, this faith is weak. Then after we get through this moment of, of you know, sadness, not getting what we want, then we'll remember, oh, yes, faith in Jesus. That's right. So you're going to see that this lack of understanding in our text um, from the crowd, it causes Jesus to weep. So he's weeping as others are celebrating him. So as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he approached the Mount of Olives um, for this final week, and he weeps over the city. So he's at a good vantage point. I often talk about how I like to go in this hike and to see, you know, the city in which God is calling us to. So Jesus is entering. He hasn't gone to Jerusalem. He's right there at the pinnacle. And he's at the Mount of Olives, looks over, and he's weeping over the city. He weeps because although many were praising him as the earthly king, he's thinking about the ones who are denying him or denying his divinity as God. That's what he's doing. People are denying themselves the peace that everyone wants, but you can't have this peace without a relationship with Jesus. So I've divided the rest of this sermon into three parts, the past, the present, and the future. Of course, I've titled uh, this teaching, The Do-Over. You'll see why at the end, The Do-Over. So let's look at the first um, section, talking about the past. We'll read from our text, Luke 19, which is where we are today. 
and I've made it easy for you. I'll be reading from the ESV. Um, Luke 19, reading from verses 28 to 44. It says, When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And, he, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitudes of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and I pray as we continue to go through this teaching that you will bring clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we're seeing in our text, Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem, and he's coming from east to west. And he's, so he's approaching the Mount of Olives, and there are two neighboring villages, Bethphage, which means house of figs, which is really the wealthier class of people. And then you have Bethany, the house of the poor. So people were literally living there who were poor. The only way you could live there is, is if you were poor. You can't live there any other way. Jesus instructed two of his disciples to go ahead of him, and they should go to Bethphage, which is the rich area. When they get there, they'll see a colt, which is a donkey. Jesus says to untie this donkey, bring it back to him so he can ride it into Jerusalem. Luke 19, verse 40 says it's a new donkey. It says that no one has ever sat on it. Now, Matthew 21, verse 40, Five tells us that Jesus riding this colt is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. And I'm going to read both verses so you can see what happens here. Matthew 21, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl 
of a donkey. So there were more than 300 prophecies related to the first coming of Jesus. And some of these prophecies might seem insignificant, but Jesus fulfilled all of them because he wanted people to understand his true identity, that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus was hopeful that people would recognize him based on the fulfillment of these biblical prophecies. When this recognition is not possible, it causes Jesus to weep. The fulfillment of this prophecy was happening, but they didn't recognize what was going on. So, th so these were supposed to be religious leaders, the Pharisees, and they were supposed to be the students of the word, and they still couldn't recognize what's happening. How could they miss this moment? Well, it's the same way how we can miss what God is doing on a Sunday. Some people are having this great experience, um, worshiping and singing songs and listening to a sermon, while others are preoccupied with other things on their minds or on, on their devices. I remember a few weeks ago, um, someone was in church and the worship team is singing, and they turned to me to ask me if I saw the score of a game. And I'm like, like, first of all, I'm trying to sing some songs here. Like, this happened right here. <laughs> and I'm like, no, uh, I'm singing. So, you know, I moved away, you know, got my own little spot. I like to be in my spot where I can just worship. But it just shows you how people can be preoccupied with other things right in the same worship. And you're saying, did you hear that song? Can we sing that verse again? They're like, why? And I'm like, are you in the same service? God is moving through the songs that we're singing. So this is what's going on. Jesus is thinking that if they didn't believe in the miracles or his claim as the Messiah, at least him riding on the donkey to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy should be further proof of his identity. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, untie the donkey, and if the owners ask, why are you taking this donkey? Just tell them, the Lord needs it. Now, this is not normal, just so you understand. Because a donkey served two purposes back then. They were used for hauling things. When it says the beast of burden, they would drag things in, make money. And it was also used as a mode of transportation. Jesus wanted this donkey as a transportation to go into Jerusalem. Now, he's borrowing this donkey. And of course, he's close. Imagine Jesus coming from Kensington. You guys know where Kensington is? No. Okay. Kensington is just outside. Um, but you guys know where Berkeley Hills is, right? So imagine him coming from Kensington. And he tells his disciples, I want you to stop in Berkeley Hills. And when you get there, you're going to see a brand new Toyota Tundra. He says, I want you to hotwire this truck and bring it to me so I could drive into Berkeley. And he says, if the owner sees you hotwiring this truck, just tell him or tell them the Lord needs it. That's what's going on right here in the story. But notice how God is always testing the obedience of his disciples. If you remember, there was another time when he got into town and they said, you got to pay taxes. 
And they're like, no, we shouldn't pay taxes. Just, no, we should. Just go to the beach and just take a fish and take some money out of the fish mouth. And they're like, okay. So they're used to Jesus telling them to do all kinds of crazy things. See, it's important for us to know, you know, when God is speaking because uh, you try this right now. Forget about Berkeley Hills. You go outside right now and hotwire Elliot's car or, and see what happens. I guarantee if you hotwire Cusack's car right now, <laughs> it's like, ah, it's over. <laughs> it's like, go ahead with the car. I got another one. But I want you to understand that Jesus could have easily walked the rest of his way because he wasn't far away. He was already in Bethany, you know, just, just finished raising Lazarus from the dead. So he's not far away. But just to ensure that, that the prophecy was fulfilled, he sent those guys away and said, I'm going to wait right here until you get back, just to ensure that as you walk on this donkey, as he's on this donkey, the prophecy would be fulfilled. The same is true for our lives, right? It's not that Jesus wants us to give up all their resources, but sometimes he's testing us to see if there's simply a willingness to do what he's saying. Sometimes we're thinking that God is going to just uh, give it all away. He just wants to know, where is your heart right now? Sometimes that's all he wants to know. Where is your heart? So, needless to say that the disciples, they obeyed the instruction. They said to the owner, and the owner says, no worries. Take my donkey, my brand new donkey. That's never, you know, nothing has ever been on it. So now that they have this donkey, Verses 35 to 36 of Luke 19. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, which is uh, their robes, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, I want us to look again at John 12, 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, let me ask you, what are some of the miracles that Jesus performed? I'm asking you. Not a rhetorical question. Okay, one wine. Anyone? Okay, another one? Feeding the 5,000. Huh? Heal the blind. There you go. See? All these, I want you guys to think about what, what Jesus did. All these miracles. So these guys, they're praising Jesus for all these miracles that they've either heard or witnessed. And now they just heard that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. So finally, after three years of, of his ministry, he's finally getting, you know, the, the respect that he deserved. There's credibility in his ministry. So they're worshiping him. They're laying down their cloaks and waving palm branches. Now, when John writes about this Palm Sunday in his gospel, he says that many people were coming to faith because of the miracles of, this, of Lazarus. Just because Lazarus you know, was, came back from the dead, they were worshiping God. So they're excited to be a part of something significant. So they're like, let's welcome this hero. So now that he's coming in, we want to be a part of this. John also records that a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and they came to see Lazarus. They want to see it. So he wasn't there by himself. 
John 11 reminds us that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. And if you remember in verse 8 when the disciples were saying, are you sure you want to go there? Because they want to kill you. I know he's our friend, but do you really want to go? And Jesus is like, yes, we got to go. But remember what I said to you, that even when Lazarus came back from the dead, when Christ brought him back, that Lazarus had new problems. The new problems is found in John 12, verses 9 to 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Isn't this the same for so many people? All you did was receive a blessing from God. You didn't even pray for it. But when you receive this blessing, people are unhappy. You would think that everyone would be celebrating the fact that Lazarus came back to life. And even if they didn't like Jesus, right, at least they could be celebrating with Martha and Mary that your brother is alive. Not so. So, you know, here's a thought. Some people won't celebrate you if it undermines or diminishes their agenda. People were traveling from Jerusalem to Bethany to console Martha and Mary because Lazarus was dead. But now that he's alive, everything changes. You were best of friends, and still you started dating someone. All of a sudden, why him? Why her? The dynamics changes, right? And sometimes it's not that you've changed. It's just that your situation has changed. You know, you've, you're still being who you've always been. The only thing is that God removed you from a bad situation, and now there's this target on your back. So the Pharisees, they want to kill Jesus because they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And now he's this popular guy. But now the chief priest is trying to figure out how do we kill Lazarus? How do we kill this dead man that's now alive again? See, that's what's happening with the religious leaders here. But people are gathered and they're celebrating in the waving palm branches. Verse 38 says, they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now when they say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're actually quoting Psalm 118 verse 26, where it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the crowd, the Messiah, um, they, you know, they're believing that the Messiah is going to be coming to be this political leader, to bring this political peace to earth, because they needed a political savior. They needed someone to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. But there's a problem. Jesus had already said that he's not there to bring political peace. Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, 
let's understand that he's not saying, you know, that the mother-in-law won't like the daughter-in-law. That's not what he's saying here, okay? So don't be afraid to get married. <laughs> but Jesus understood that he's a polarizing figure. He's saying that you can't serve God and remain neutral. And we were singing in the song earlier about running to the Father again and again, right? He's saying you either accept me as Lord or reject me as another man. That's what he's saying. So he's saying there's no middle ground in serving me. He says even in your household, we all must make a decision regarding his identity. That's what he's saying. As difficult as it might be, I know that some of you might have to choose between your family tra tradition or Jesus. I know I've had to done it in, in, my, in my lifetime, making those difficult decisions. There are people within your immediate family who are believers, and there are some who might not be believers. And these differences sometimes create tension. So Jesus is saying, because of his identity, you can't remain neutral. So who will you serve? It's either Jesus or Satan. There's no middle ground. So the first coming of Jesus was not about political peace. It was about personal peace. Peace in your heart. Peace with God. Now the second coming will be about bringing about this political peace. When Jesus will rule and reign as king forever. So there's this two. So the crowd had their expectation of the Messiah. He's supposed to free them from the oppression from the Roman Empire. They want political peace. This is the tension that we have as Christians. We're supposed to make people feel better. If you remember what happened last week in the story, when Lazarus is dead, Jesus walked in and saying, settle down. Um, you know, it, it's going to come again. But if someone is living in sin and they die in that sin, the Bible makes it clear that they are going to go to hell. No black and white about it. No, I mean, no middle grounds, black and white. You go in heaven or hell. That's what it teaches. And sometimes this realization, our proclamation, it can change the dynamics of a relationship because sometimes people don't want to hear the truth. They want it to be all flowery. Like, oh, you know, they died, and I know they lived a bad life, but they're going to a better place. No. They're going to hell. Sorry. But well, that's what it says in the Bible. When the crowd realized Jesus wasn't meeting their expectation, they rejected him. Verses 39 to 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the Pharisees did not acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. And they became upset because he was allowing people to worship him, but even worse, he was accepting this worship. They wanted Jesus to rebuke the disciples for praising him, but says, Jesus says, if I tell them not to do it, the stones will start praising me. Christ was essentially saying, you're concerned about people worshiping me, but the real concern is about creation worshiping the creator. See, you can't silence creation when it comes to the creator. In Numbers 22, God allowed a donkey to speak to Balaam. Remember that story? So 
God will use whatever he wants. You know, Balaam is wondering, what's going on? And let's keep going. Couldn't see the sword in front. And God allowed this donkey to speak. Because when God moves, creation has to respond to the creator. But also in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 2, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So Jesus is saying, one way or another, creation is going to worship the creator. So I won't tell these people to stop worshiping me, because if you shut them up, the rocks are going to cry out. No, I don't want to see the rocks cry out, because the rocks cry out means that I stop worshiping Jesus. So the Pharisees have a problem with all of this, but there's a scene of how they're responding to Jesus. People are, again, rejoicing. People are rejecting. And they're missing this moment of Christ's entry. And this is where Jesus weeps in verses 41 to 42. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's saying what you believe is peace is not peace. You're missing an important moment right now. The group was seeking political peace from Roman oppression, but Jesus was trying to offer a greater peace. A better way to say it is that the greatest oppression in life is sin because it separates us from God. Sin will derail our future. It's a stronghold that Satan uses to place over us. Stops us from reaching our potential in Christ. Jesus was seeking a way to free them from sin so they could have this peace with God. But they didn't understand. And it's this lack of understanding why Jesus wept. So, because now he's saying, you've seen the miracles You've seen Lazarus. What more do you want me to prove that I'm God? We saw this miracle, and I said to you how simple it looks for him to be on this donkey. But just that small detail of him riding on a donkey, a brand new donkey, was key to them understanding, to saying this is going to be the cherry on top. And when they didn't recognize all that's happening, even as leaders, that's when he wept. I mentioned last week how Christ wept over Lazarus' tomb in John 11:35, And now we see him weeping over a city in Luke 19:41. When the Bible describes these two occasions of him weeping, it uses two different Greek words. In John 11, verse 35, the Greek word that they're using actually means that he shed a tear. Jesus shed a tear. Nothing too emotional because Jesus knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So that you know, experience was just something simple. He shed a tear. Um, many people believe that I don't have tears, but I, don't, I have tears. I, I, I don't know how they're formed, but I have tears. It's there somewhere. You know, I'm, I do believe I have the ability to shed a tear. So in the moment of Lazarus, he shed a tear. But in this story where Jesus weeps over the city, it's a different Greek word that means 
He's wailing or sobbing over the city. So again, I want you to see the scene. People are waving palm branches to celebrate Jesus, while some are rejecting him as the Messiah. And Jesus is simultaneously weeping over a city, weeping over lost people who are missing an opportunity for salvation. The only person who understands the why behind these tears is Jesus. He's not weeping because he has this appreciation for the palm branches. He's saying, why can't you see what I'm trying to do? He's weeping because sometimes we just don't get it. You guys ever cried because someone don't get it? No? A few people. You know, having these conversations, you're like, you just don't get it. I'm not crying because... You know, I'm just sad. You just, what do I need to do? Do I need to just shake this into you for you to get it? With this lack of understanding by the people, Jesus now predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, verse 43 to 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in every, on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Think about that. He's saying, I've been here all this time. You've seen miracles after miracles. And here I am coming through, fulfilling this prophecy in front of you, and you still don't get it. Because you can't get it, there's this destruction that's coming. These two verses suggest that Jesus was prophesying about an event that was going to be fulfilled many, many years later. In 67, 67 AD, the Jewish people, they launched a revolt against the Roman Empire because they're saying since Jesus didn't come to fulfill um, this, this kingship as Messiah, this political leader, then we're going to revolt against the Roman Empire. So they did that in 67 AD. But in 70 AD, the Roman Empire, they responded by overpowering the Jews in Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Here's what the Roman soldiers did. They cut down the olive trees from the Mount of Olives, the same place where Jesus was, weeping over the city. And they brought those into the Temple Mount and they lit those trees on fire. Here's why. The oil from these trees, they served as a flammable substance. So once they lit the tree, it just lit fire everywhere. So in opposed to keep having to put, like when we, you know, when, right now, if we want to have in the fire, we're putting these dry shrubs. No, these guys lit the olive tree knowing that as the tree burns, the oil from those trees was going to spread everywhere, which is what they did. So they burned the entire temp Temple Mount. One of my all-time favorite uh, historians is Flavius Josephus. You guys know about him. He's, he's the first uh, century historian. He actually lived through this. He was born in 37 AD. And he wrote that the Romans responded, and when they did, 1.1 million Jews were killed, and 97,000 Jews were enslaved. To this day, this present day, there are rocks from the Temple Mount that were atop, that fell down to the ground where Jesus walked. And they're still there. I have a picture there. You can see it. 
those rocks are still there to this day. And the reason why they have those rocks there is that they want to serve as a reminder um, where people actually, you know, miss their moment. It's the moment when they didn't recognize that God showed up. So they left these rocks intentionally for people to see this. So that's what took place in Palm Sunday past. But let's see how it relates to us in the present. In our present, God partners with us for kingdom impact. Remember in our story, Jesus delegated the responsibility by sending disciples to go ahead of him. And they were supposed to do something. The disciples went ahead and they did something. And as they responded, the owner gave the donkey. Now, same is, is true for us, that God works with us. When you do a kind deed, when you share the gospel with someone, these are the ways in which we are partnering with God for kingdom impact because we're demonstrating his character. Sometimes we think it's something greater than what it is, but just by offering a kind word to someone is a way in which we partner with God. We see that Jesus is also worthy of our worship. Now, there are many reasons why God is worthy of praise, but the primary reason that we're given in Scripture is found in Revelation 4, verse 11. It says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is the creator, and the reason um, we have this world, the reason we have life and breath in our bodies is because God created us and he created all this. We are his creation. And so when Jesus didn't live up to their expectation, they rejected him. So we have to understand that we, we're going to have seasons in our lives where Christ just won't meet our expectation. But will we still worship him? That's the question that we have to answer each time. Another thing that we see is that never let the crowd deter your faith. Although some people were rejecting Jesus, there was still a group that refused to allow people to deter them from worshiping him. We saw that in the crowd. The truth is the world will never understand your faith. And in some cases, the people in your circle won't understand why you worship Jesus. And the reason why they can't understand is because faith starts with a personal choice. Faith starts with, with us. We make this decision in our heart. This is one of the reasons why baptism is so important because we can't see your heart. We can't see the, the decision that you've made. The only way we know that you're a Christian or we can accept it is because you've now used baptism as an, a declaration, a public declaration of your faith. So we see this and we say, ah, you're a Christian. You're making that decision because it's easy for us to say, well, you don't have to know. You don't know my heart. True. But the way we know as Christians is this public declaration. We also see that God weeps over lost souls, and so should you, so should we. Um, we, we must develop the same heart posture that God has for lost people. I mentioned before that he's always moved with compassion. But in Ezekiel 33, 11, we see that says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So we're seeing Jesus saying, we don't want you to die in your evil ways. Turn back. It's the same for us. 
in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we're seeing that even in these moments, that Jesus continues to wait, waiting for us to make the decision to follow him. Now we're going to look at Palm Sunday future, and we're going to be having communion right after this. Palms in the future, we see, don't miss the time of God's coming. Notice how these guys had to leave these stones at the bottom as a reminder. Again, the title of this sermon, The Do-Over. And the reason for this is that the Bible tells us that we'll have an opportunity to correct our wrong. Yes, we will. We'll have a Palm Sunday do-over. You guys like have do-overs? We make a mistake, we need a do-over. And every once in a while, when I'm writing in a book, I make a mistake, and I forget I'm not on a computer. Like, where is the, you know, the undo? I need a do-over. Just, just cross the line through it. But believe it or not, we'll have an opportunity to get a do-over. The book of Revelation says that we'll be around the throne of heaven, worshiping the Lamb, which is Jesus. Look what it says in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and watch this, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One day we're going to have an opportunity to get it right. A day when everyone's rejoicing, no one's rejecting, no one's weeping. That day's coming again. We're all going to be celebrating Jesus together. You saw it there. A multitude different nations and languages. We'll be celebrating because salvation will be fully completed. All his redeemed will be with him forever. Blameless before him with great joy, according to Jude 24. We'll see that Christ's work of redemption will have fully been realized. His promises to us will come to pass. Why will the saints be holding palm branches in heaven? Because this glory is possible because Jesus made that triumphant entry into Jerusalem to die on the cross for us. We'll be in heaven only because of what Christ did at Calvary. We get a chance to commemorate when Jesus first entered Jerusalem with palm branches in celebration. Because of this Palm Sunday, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God in Jerusalem, there'll be a Palm Sunday of victory. Jesus entering as a true king. See, over 2,000 years, when he was going through, many were debating, is this the king? While some were saying, yes, he's the king. But there's coming a day when we'll all recognize him as king. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
as the worship team comes forward, we prepare for communion. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we see in our text that there is this opportunity for us. Um, I'm not sure which one you are. Maybe you've had different experiences in your life and you're wondering, like, how did this thing happen to me? Because I didn't think this would come out. Well, maybe God just did that as an opportunity for you to see that he is God and is saying, come to me, all who have labored, and I'll give you a rest. And sometimes we can see, like the disciples, they're serving God, worshiping Jesus, but there was this moment when they still didn't recognize the moment. Now you see why several weeks I've been saying we're going through this series, it's on a journey, hearing the voice of God, understanding when God is present in our midst, working through the different areas of our lives. So I want to offer an invitation for salvation for those who don't have a relationship with him. But I also want to pray for those who sometimes forget the role that Jesus is playing in our lives. And this is important as we get into communion because in this season, we take communion because as often as we do this, we're remembering the finished work on the cross. We weren't there physically um, to see Jesus walking or riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. But we do recognize what he does in our lives. And so we're remembering these moments. So, Father, I pray for the one who's here who doesn't have a relationship with you. I pray that you'll speak to them even now, that they'll come to know you as Lord of their lives. I pray, God, that you'll help them to surrender their all, knowing that you're asking them to make a decision. There's no middle ground. We need to choose you as Lord. So I pray, God, in this moment that you'll allow them to make that decision. But I also pray, God, for all of us here. Sometimes we experience things in our lives that are unpleasant, and sometimes we, because of this disappointment, we are just not sure how to receive you in our lives. But I pray that you help us to not forget those moments, but to always recognize you in every season in our lives. I pray, God, that you will just move in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.